0: Why do kids have to try something for themselves? Why don't they just believe us when we say, that paint will stain your clothes? Or, if you throw those keys down the storm drain, we're not going to be able to drive home. They have to go find out if it's true. We all know that a mind couldn't develop if it was just told things, rather than getting to experience them itself. And think about us as adolescents. The more we're told that this is the way things are, the more we want to push back and cross-examine. If our intellectual autonomy is stifled, it doesn't end well. If this is the natural pattern for the basic knowledge we learned growing up, what about for arguably the most important knowledge of all? If God just wrote something undeniable in the sky, I exist, it would put a certain kind of knowledge in our minds, but would it be the right knowledge? And is knowledge the whole game? If you think about the complex system that each of us is, our attitudes, our convictions, our passions, how do we know just cramming a forced belief in God in there won't upset something more delicate? That it wouldn't be sacrificing the long game for temporary gain? And if you don't believe us, just ask the materialist philosophers in the afterlife. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg in Life. Today we're going to be asking the question, why doesn't God just prove that He exists? My name is Curtis Charlott, and I'm going to be the host, I'm going to take you along into that question. And I feel like that question is legit enough, it's asked enough, that it's worth putting on the screen again. Maybe we don't always use the exact same language for it, but people are wondering that. If, if there's God, why doesn't God just say? there's God. There's so much chaos that comes out of it. There's this huge, healthy debate about whether there's even the existence, whether God even exists, and why is that useful to have that be the starting point? Shouldn't we all just know there is God, and that now we can move forward to the more important things? Why doesn't God, if He's got all the resources in the universe, just put a little of that into some, like, a billboard campaign or something to say, I'm here, now here's what you should go do? Well, that question actually presupposes the affirmative answer to another question that we rarely ever think to ask. And we want to back up this episode and look at that one, which is this, pardon me, is getting everyone to know that He exists really valuable to God? Because what Swedenborg asserts, and what we're going to assert tonight, is that it's actually only helpful to God to have you know that He exists if it happens in the right order that actually just forcing it to happen could cause more problems than good. Because what divine providence is trying to do, the, the guidance of the divine in our lives, most strenuously, is not to convince us that he exists, but it's really all about this. Changing the will in freedom. And that may sound cryptic and strange. Swedenborg says there are two main parts of us. He calls them the intellect and the will, roughly equivalent to our thoughts and our feelings, and he says, what really matters is to change this. And if we don't change this, changing this can actually backfire. So we're going to show you exactly why God doesn't just prove He exists. In this episode, we're going to start by looking at how the machinery could get messed up. You know that saying, a wrench in the works, it's about putting something into a machine that doesn't belong in that part of the machine or doesn't even belong in the machine at all? There's similar risks involved with just throwing huge concepts into the human mind. Swedenborg asserts that if you introduce a miracle or some kind of undeniable, supernatural-esque uh, communication of knowledge, you put two things at risk to the person who receives that knowledge, and we're going to show you what he's talking about here. we got to look a little bit at Swedenborg's picture of the processes that are going on in our minds. He says that we have both what he calls inner thinking and outer thinking, that there are two levels of thought going on in our mind. And that might seem a little bit strange, but he describes it pretty straightforwardly here in Divine Providence 130. He says, the basic state of our thought is that we look from our inner thinking and see things in our outer thinking in a kind of mirror. Because it's already noted we can look at our own thinking, which can be done only by a deeper level of thinking. We can look at our own thinking. You can say to yourself, why am I thinking that? Which shows there's obviously multiple parts of you if you can scrutinize your own thought behavior with sort of sub-thoughts or meta-thoughts that are behind that. He says, when you're doing that, you're looking from your inner thinking into your outer thinking. So we have this inner and outer thinking, but there's other parts to our thinking mind that Swedenborg talks about. He also says that in our inner thinking... We have freedom, that our inner thinking gives us freedom. There's also rationality, which act, rationality acts as sort of a bridge between the two kinds of thinking and between our freedom and the concepts and the details of life in the outer world. So the two things that he says are at risk when we absorb uh, miraculous or undeniable information is, one, the communication... the flow of communication between the inner and outer thinking, and two, the interaction between freedom and rationality. Both of those things can actually be harmed and, and close to destroyed by the introduction of forced knowledge. And we'll show you how that all plays out within these mechanisms that we've already got going on. All right, so this is how it works. You've got all this system set up, and when things are in the right order, Swedenborg says, life from God streams in and it's able to move through in the proper pattern which is into the inner thinking through our freedom and rationality into the outer f- outer thinking and they're organizing the things we learn uh, and gather as knowledge and if all that is going well we get all these processes in the mind the, the thinking the putting things together the growing the learning the changing that all works and you'll notice that there is an exchange of information between the inner and outer thinking uh, through rationality. And in the healthy system, there is this communication back and forth along rationality, but it's run by the inner thinking. The inner thinking is instigating and calling the shots. The outer thinking is in more of a supporting role. That's how it's supposed to be for us to move forward and progress spiritually. But if a miracle comes in, externally, meaning we see or hear something that's undeniable, Swedenborg says it so takes over the outer thinking, he uses, it's translated in one translation, bewitches the outer thinking, that as you can see, it blocks off rationality, sends messages actually back out of the outer thinking, into the inner thinking, which backs up the whole system and actually hinders the flow of life from the Lord into the mind. And when that happens, Everything's disrupted and it degrades the quality of the thoughts that we can have, which in turn degrade the quality of the progress that we can make because we were formed through thoughts and feelings by God. In case that's a little abstract, we're going to give you a tangible-ish example here. Let's say that I went and learned about succulent pots. You guys know succulent? It's like, you know, little desert plants in a little planter. And let's say I learned about them, and I was told in a classroom sort of what they were. This wasn't, I didn't go out in the field, you know, to a plant store and see them. I just was told about it, maybe I was shown a picture. So I developed some some classroom knowledge about it. It's not the same as having handled the real thing, but it, but it gives me an approximation, sort of a two-dimensional approximation of the actual thing. But let's say that I was told this information by a professor who I held in really high esteem. He or she was my ideal uh, uh, of knowledge and of wisdom. And so when they said something, I really took it to heart. And because of how much respect I had for them, when they said this, they just find a succulent pot for me and laid it out. That became my basis for reality surrounding succulent pots in general. (laughs) And um, that was what was foremost in my mind. So much so that when the real thing came along, when I actually got my hands on an actual succulent pot, I couldn't look at it without thinking about the description I'd already heard. I couldn't focus my mind on it without coming back to what I'd already been taught, and such, I don't even really see the actual object because I'm so focused on the description that I learned. Let's take this, the false thing, away. Without that, there's so much subtlety I can go into in studying the actual thing. It's not like a description, it's a living breathing, I mean, respirating, photosynthesizing, I mean, uh, organism, you can tell there's all kinds of diversity and subtlety here. There are actually multiple species of plant in this one pot. There is color variation here. You can see some of these leaves in the back are withered. They're leaning to catch the light. There's so much that you can learn about this, and you don't know it unless you actually get a chance to not just see the real thing, but hold it. I can touch it. I can get... extrasensory or other sensory information beyond just sight. I can understand on a deeper level what's going on. I need to be able to rotate it, switch my vantage point. That's how I learn everything about it. But this whole process we've described plays out with ideas in our minds. So let's say that the idea of something is like that false succulent picture, or that that simplified succulent picture that we had here. Let's say that an idea of God is communicated to us via a miracle, or something it's told to us in a moment, and it's undeniably true. That creates in us a description that, that is much like this here, because it's so undeniable that you don't have a chance to do what I was doing before. So if we get that out of the way, which is look, study, learn, turn, thing over in our minds. Using that process of freedom and rationality that we showed in here, that is the mental-spiritual equivalent of moving this thing around and looking and squinting my eyes and really figuring out for myself what it is. And my, not just this object is 3D, but if I get to study it, my working knowledge of it is going to be so much more multi-dimensional. And that's the same thing that happens with ideas, that if we are given it all at once and not allowed to weigh it in our freedom and rationality and turn it this way and that mentally, it becomes similarly superficial and void of detail. Like if if you... somebody could say, yeah, succulents are green, but if you look, there's all kinds of shades of color. It's generally green, but there's a lot more going on. So it could be with God, you're told, this is how God is. There's so much more there. And we're in danger if we are just told or forced by a miracle to believe of falling into some poor quality uh, faith, this is divine providence one hundred and thirty one where Swedenborg talks about it. He says this shows us that a faith caused by miracles is not real faith but only second hand belief. It has no rational content, let alone spiritual content. It is actually an outer shell with nothing inside it. The same holds true of everything we do on the basis of this kind of second hand faith, whether it is acknowledging God, worshiping him at home or in church, or benefiting others. He goes on. When the only thing that prompts the acknowledgement, the worship, and the devotion is some miracle, then we are acting from the earthly level of our human nature and not from the spiritual level, because the miracle instills faith from the outside and not from the inside. From the world, then, and not from heaven, because we're not following the Divine because we see what the Divine is and this looks like love and like truth, and I want to do that because it's good or I'm not on this spiritual path because I've weighed it and thought this is the best way for me to spend my life as a human being, I believe this is actually leading me toward the thing that's going to best serve myself so that I can serve other people and this is the answer to the problems of the world. We're doing it just because we have to because we were told, and we can't deny it, or we're worried about consequences. It's a whole different... the the knowledge might be the same, but on the will side, it's totally different. Remember the will and the intellect? The feelings and thoughts? Here's two different icons that maybe will stimulate a little more of what they are. Uh, the will is is the emotion. It is the power, and the intellect is... I got it. I got the idea. Unless we have the will side going on, it the intellect, it's futile to cultivate things in the intellect. If we're told something about the way God is and what we have to do in life, if we're just coming at it because we are forced to believe it's true, and not because we love it, it's part of our purpose, it's part of what we believe we really want to be at our core, it's not going to matter in the end. Actually, Swedenborg says that in the spiritual world, where we're all headed, the will is going to always take precedence. So it will actually blot out or circumnavigate things in the intellect it doesn't want. And we're going to show you exactly how that plays out in that spiritual world in part two. Forced intellectual consent is worthless, because in the end, in the spiritual world, the will will always end up dominating, or choosing the course. And this was something Swedenborg got to see in his spiritual experiences over and over and over. And we're going to play one out for you here that illustrates the principle pretty directly. It's actually a longer story than we have time to get into here, but I'll give you a little bit of a preamble to set up the point of the story that we want to jump into. We'll introduce you to some characters. It's these guys who are here. This is a little bit closer up and and a little separation so I can describe. Stay with me. Here we have the philosophers, and these are people who had been um, describing or, or putting forth actually a materialistic atheist viewpoint, naturalist viewpoint of reality in the spiritual world. So they had died, gone to the spiritual world, but at by this time had forgotten, or had pushed aside and were arguing that there is nothing other than physical reality. That that's, that that's all it is. And actually, Swedenborg says this is a relatively common phenomenon, that there, there is an afterlife full of people who don't believe that there is an afterlife. But in this moment, they were putting forward the merits of what they thought. This this is a materialist belief system, and this is why it's true, and this is why we know it's true. There were people listening, there was a bystander who was not pictured here, but actually, and who said, wait, wait, wait! You, this is not right. And Actually, by that bystander was a priest, who priests don't always get a good rap in Swedenborg's um, experiences and, and in his cosmology in general, but here he happens to be playing a very good role. I guess it can go either way, but here he is telling these guys, Here, here's actually how it is, and we jump in right where he's describing the potential of the human mind to be raised up, so that even if you at this point are convinced that reality is a different way, you can be shown very easily the true nature of it. So here is what he had to say.
1: Nevertheless, the intellects of all people,
0: the evil as well as the good, can rise all the way to the light where the angels of heaven are. There they can all see that there is a God and a life after death. They can see that our souls are not ethereal, they're not made out of the nature of the physical world. They are spiritual and therefore will live forever. Our intellects are capable of being in that angelic light as long as our physical loves are removed loves that belong to the physical world and favor it and its nature and loves that belong to the body and favor it and its sense of self sorry okay i'm here okay. um <laughs> I'm, I'm uncomfortably close to this guy here now do you get what he's saying? He's saying that the the will and the intellect, we're breaking it up into these two basic spiritual elements of us, and he's saying that the will can get in the way. If you have loves that favor you over everyone else, that's in conflict with the truth, because that kind of desire doesn't want to know the truth about God and about mutual love and about heaven. It wants to stay in its, its bubble that will allow it to think it's the center of the universe and that harming other people is alright. So that it will reject the truth, but he's saying if those loves are made dormant, which can happen in the spiritual world, then anybody, regardless of where you are in the spiritual world, if you've chosen the lowest hell or anywhere up the spectrum, if the loves are made dormant, the intellect can be raised up into heaven and be sho- be be uh, shown heaven's light and heaven's wisdom, just like that, and actually we're going to see that play out right here.
1: At that point, the Lord instantly removed loves like that from the philosophers, and they were allowed to talk with angels. From their conversation in that state, they became aware that there is a God, and that they were living after death in another world. They blushed with complete embarrassment and cried, We "We have been insane! We have been insane! This was not, however, their own state. So after a few minutes, it became tiresome and unwelcome to them, They turned their backs on the priest, not wanting to hear him talking anymore, and returned to their former loves, which were merely material, worldly, and bodily. They headed off to the left, wandering from community to community. Eventually, they came to a road where they felt a breeze that brought them pleasure in things they loved the most. So they said, let's take this road, and went downward. Eventually, they came to spirits who felt pleasure in the same kinds of love and worse, since those philosophers felt pleasure in doing evil things, and had in fact done evil things to many along the way.
0: A couple of things to note there. One is, you notice they said that since they were raised up into this angelic light, they saw it, even to the point where, and this is really how he quotes it, we, we have been insane, we have been insane. Oh, what were we thinking? Of course it's like this, but he says that state was not their own. Because they because these just just because they didn't believe that stuff doesn 't necessarily mean they were bad people, but these people happened to be pretty nasty people that would be willing to do bad things and they love harming people, so because that was deep in the heart it didn't like this view of reality, so eventually they wanted to get out of that state, and as you can see, they found spirits who loved the other kinds of the similar harmful things teamed up with them and rejected the intellectuals so here you have a case of exactly what people say, why didn't that just happen? These people were just shown straight out, here's how it is, here's how it is, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. But it didn't last. It didn't stick because it wasn't the will being changed. It was just the intellect. It's the will that has to change. And let me say that Swedenborg talks about this phenomenon a lot. This was, we picked out with like a multiple numbers that illustrated this concept, and we had to choose, you know, when we're making this show, okay, do you want to do this one, do you want to do this one? This happens a lot. This is a common occurrence in the spiritual world that you can be convinced of something momentarily, but unless the will is changed, it's not gonna, it's not gonna stay. So that is why, this is why you don't have this, hey, we're proving it to you all the time in the physical world where we are. Because really, what Divine Providence is trying to do is work hard to change the will. And the will has to be changed in freedom. And actually, miracles aren't really a great tool for making that change, as we're going to see in part three. As we said before, it's all about changing the will in freedom. And when I say it's all about I mean life is all about that. That's the goal of divine providence is to continue to perfect what we love and what our purposes are to bring us higher and higher into heaven, which brings us into more intellectual wisdom, but it's led by how far up your heart goes. Now, you can be reformed through ideas, but only if you take those ideas to heart and work at them. If it's just something that you don't put any effort into, it's not going to make change. And the freedom is crucial to it. You might think, "Well, just take the freedom out of it. Just, just like change the will. Just like push it along." But that's not f- spiritual. Uh, freedom is not just an add-on to consciousness. It's essential. It's part of the basic building blocks of consciousness. We talked about this a decent amount in our show, Spiritual Freedom, which you can check out if you would like, but we're just going to look at a little excerpt from there, where, where this is a quote from D- Divine Providence, Swedenborg's Divine Providence 78, where he talks about why freedom is so essential to making permanent emotional change. Whatever we have done from our freedom, in accord with our thinking, becomes a permanent part of us. This is because our sense of who we are and our freedom are integral to each other. Our sense of who we are is a part of our life, and whatever we do from our life, we do freely. Then again, our sense of who we are includes everything that comes from our love, because our love is our life, and whatever we do because of our life's love, we do freely. Only that can become a permanent part of us, and it's says permanent will change from the things that, where, where you can go any direction you want, but you see this thing and you think, this is good, I'm going to pursue this, I'm going to move in that direction when I don't have to, but I want to, that's what makes you who you are. That's Swedenborg's message. And if we take away the freedom, there can be none of this progress that I was just indicating in this direction. Swedenborg talks about it in True Christianity 482. He says, both our will and our free choice could be referred to as living forces, because action stops when the will stops, and the will stops when free choice stops. The free choice is essential to the will moving. And he gives an example, he, he, further in that number, TC 482, he says, it's like taking, it's like, uh, taking the wheels off of a cart well, we have cars now, so let's look at it in terms of a car. Let's say this is us. We're zooming down the road. Those wheels are our freedom. If they're taken away, the rest of the car is going nowhere. That's the the role that freedom plays in the movement of the wheel, because freedom is what leads the wheel forward. So if we're zooming down the road towards good things, unless we have freedom, we can't get anywhere on it, because it's only through that action of choosing, you know, you learn about something and you learn that it's good, and then you say, I want to pursue that, even if I have to, you know, do some things that are are a bit of work for me. I'm gonna, it's worth it, so I'm going at that. That's changing the will in freedom. And so within the context of that principle, miracles are actually ineffective in, in accomplishing the goal of getting this car to heaven, because they don't really work when we're going in the right direction, and they don't really work when we're going in the wrong direction, and Swedenborg describes it in Divine Providence 133. He says, the effect of miracles on good people is different from their effect on evil people. Now, he'll often describe these two poles. I know that we're all a mix while we're in this world, so just think about when you're in a good state of mind and when you're in an evil state of mind. This is to illustrate the principle, don't go around saying, I know how miracles would affect you, you're evil just look at it in yourself. Good people have no desire for miracles, but they believe the miracles in the Word. If they do hear anything about a miracle, they think of it only as a minor argument that strengthens their faith because they base their thinking on the Word and therefore on the Lord and not on the miracle. Now What that means, it doesn't mean that we couldn't want something amazing to happen if we're in a good state, but that's not why we're going down the spiritual path. We're not going towards what we believe is true and good because you know, we saw something that forced us to go there, we're going because we believe it's true and good. We can have all kinds of amazing experiences that push us in that direction further, but it's only, it's only buttresses it, it only adds to it, it's not the primary reason. Even if it's got started initially by some kind of experience, it's us, it's only, we're only going forward because we decided, well, this is the right way to go, it's not being drugged there, by a miracle. On the reverse side, if you're going down the wrong path, or you know, the, the path that is least helpful to the human race, he says, it's different for evil people. They can actually be constrained and compelled to faith and even to worship and devotion by miracles. This lasts only a short while though because their evils are pent up inside and the compulsions and gratifications of those evils are constantly working away inside their outward worship and devotion. In the effort to let them break free of this confinement, these people think about the miracle and wind up calling it a sham, a trick, or a natural event which enables them to return to their evil ways." <coughs> <coughs> that whole time I was like, it was like talking about like pent up and can't get out, and I was like, that's how my cough is in my throat. Sorry, really, really apologize for it. But the point is, evil people, right? In we're evil state of mind, you can be forced to do certain things, to show devotion and that sort of thing, but because you still have, remember we talked about the complexity of the mind, because you still have in your deeper thinking or in your will there's this desire to do harm, you're just, that's just going to get blocked up and plugged up and eventually it's going to need an outlet so it will get rid of, somehow, get rid of uh, whatever is causing it to not let itself be expressed, meaning if you learn that you've got to be good, but you don't want to, eventually you'll find a way to say, nah, that it wasn't good in the first place, it wasn't good in the first place. So, that's why these miracles don't really help in that way. But you'd think, but wouldn't if everybody just, okay fine, maybe not a divine miracle, but just like a vision, like everybody gets visited by some kind of spiritual being, it just gives them a few pointers, wouldn't that help? Well, y- yes and no. Again, this is Divine Providence 134 no one is reformed by visions or by conversations with the dead because they compel. There are two kinds of visions, divine and demonic. Divine visions are given by means of portrayals in heaven, while demonic visions are affected through magical events in hell. There are imaginary visions as well, visions that are that are the illusions of a mind that has lost its bearings. The key word up at the top there is reformed. Not that people can't have visions, and there can be some good ones that have good effects, but no, nobody is reformed by them, meaning that's not what's pushing your moral or spiritual growth. As I said before, it's just an addendum. And this is important here that he's pointing out that, yeah, visions are, are cool, spiritual experiences are cool, but there's good and bad ones. Right? They're not always cool. And that's just like, events that we have here in the world. You know, there's good people, there's bad people. It's just, Swedenborg himself was having all kinds of spiritual experiences. So, uh, of course, he thinks that they can accomplish good, and there's plenty of people who have had them and they've accomplished a lot of good in their lives. We're not trying to say that it's not good, we're just trying to say that's not the primary driver. It's, it's what we do based on those things, and n- you can't be a hundred percent sure that something is good just because it's spiritual you know this ju- just like we use freedom and rationality to weigh other things we've got to use that to weigh the spiritual experiences we have everybody who has some kind of vision then later can say wait did that really happen? Was that just a trick of the mind? And even if they do believe it, that you have the freedom to say, is this actually good? You know, is this actually something that's helpful because as Swedenborg said, not just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's necessarily good. There's good and bad in the spiritual world. How do you tell them apart Man, I don't know. I mean, it's tough. We we did do an episode that was kind of about that, uh, talking about angels. Uh, and we have a little chart here that we pulled out of that. We had did a show called How to Feel the Presence of Angels. We do a more lengthy conversation in there about how do you tell the difference between a good or evil vision. We boiled it down a bit here. The experience may be from lower spiritual realms if it communicates a lot about external worldly issues, pressures you, you about what to believe or to do, inspires fear, anxiety, criticism, or arrogance. Those could be red flags. Again, we can't pinpoint it. With total precision, the experience from higher and heavenly re- could be from higher and heavenly realms if it communicates about issues of the spirit, gives you space to decide what to believe or do, inspires love, kindness, humility, and usefulness. Again, just based on our understanding of Swedenborg, so you can kind of decide your column, but still you need to use these abilities of rationality and freedom to weigh it as just like this plant here right you got it this is your spiritual experience you got to be able to look at it wait what what really is this thing what's really making this thing go what do i believe what do i trust because that way of looking at things using freedom and rationality that's how we were built that's what life was built around we were built to use it and it was built to be this mechanism by which we work with god in this education process that leads us higher and higher and higher. All right, let's recap what we've learned here today in our wrap-up. So, as it turns out, the process by which God operates in us mentally is complex, and in some ways fragile, and providing undeniable proof of the existence of God can actually have adverse effects and ultimately be ineffective. And it's ineffective because, rather than what we think, what we love is what really matters. So, if we reach an involuntary belief in God based on concepts in the spiritual world, our will will eventually reject any proof, no matter how strong it is, if it doesn't accord with what we love. And actually, miracles aren't that potent of a tool, because for those who are already developing a love for others that leads to a yearning for the truth, miracles are just a side confirmation. And for people who are looking only to their own good, miracles are a mental agitator, keeping the feelings pent up and are, then, and are eventually something that needs to be explained away. So if if you're already on a good path, they'll help you keep going on it. If you're already on a bad path, they're just a temporary inconvenience to you going in that direction. So it's really about us, and it's about weighing the truth of things, using that freedom, using that rationality, and... Do that with Swedenborg as well. (laughs) Just because Swedenborg says something doesn't mean, okay, I'm just taking it, you know, he said it. Take your time, look at the concepts that we're presenting to you here, turn them around in your mind. Do they seem just? Do they seem ethical? Do they seem probable? Does it provide a a satisfying worldview? The things you can test, the things we tell you about how to live your life, go Go try it. Does it work? Does it bring happiness to yourself and others, or does it seem to be taking you in a healthy direction? You've got it. You can't just learn something and then that's it. We've got to try it out. We've got to weigh it on our own. That's the point. Swedenborg even says that in the spiritual world, and (laughs) if you want to believe him on this, uh, whenever somebody's taught something, they're also taught the opposite perspective, so that they have time to weigh it and come and choose for themselves. This is just how human minds are meant to function. So do that, and you'll have these wonderful living concepts that are are battle-tested and that have meaning to you rather than just you're told about in a laboratory setting. And if the more that you do that, the more that you work things out and do start to advance towards what's good and true, the more everything becomes confirmation. Not, you don't need, uh, it's, you know, the miraculous is great, it has its place, but you'll start to see Swedenborg is saying every little thing, once you get clued into it, is testifying of the divine truth. Everything is just singing about it. That This is how it is, and you can learn just from sitting on a bench in the park the, the nature of things, because everything is wired that way, and we can get there as we start to practice this more and more. And that's why God doesn't circumnavigate the process by just doing the miracle thing. We need to go through the organic, step-by-step process, just like everything grows, everything changes in that way. However, if you do want to skip right to heaven, the heavenly mindset, like and subscribe. That will get you right there, Uh promise. <laughs> that will help our video spread out into YouTube. You know I always tell you guys that. Please do, it does matter to us. And if you're willing to help us out, your donation can make this program work. Here's a little bit of our philosophy.
1: We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com. And we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.
0: All right, speaking of everybody winning, let's go to the questions. Did I say that last time? I don't know. Let's go to the questions. Let's check it out. What do you guys uh, think about this topic? Miss D., Aren't some of us needed to fill the spot in hell in order to, for free will to exist for people on the planet? Equilibrium versus all of us created for heaven. How does that match up? All right, yes, this is a great question. Talking about Swedenborg has this concept that there needs to be an equilibrium of heaven and hell in order for us to have freedom, to be able to choose between the two, right? So that, that's, a, that's a space that we all need to be in in order to get for us to be able to make the choice that allows God to pull us up. So, doesn't that mean a certain number of people need to go to hell... Uh, because that way there's enough pull from hell so that heaven can be up here and you can go towards it. I would say not, and this is why. The only reason that we need to be in touch with heaven and hell right now is because we are born with a beten- attracted to both. I mean, Swedenborg says we're, we're born with this attraction to hell and that God is, from our birth, pulling us up to heaven towards heaven, because of the way things have gotten with the human race. That originally it wasn't so, but because there was hell and people kept buying into it, and pe- parents passed it down to their kids, and society's sort of like a... I'm, think, I'm thinking of this metaphor that doesn't exist. Like a snowball, but it's rolling rolling downhill that has stuff in it that it picks up. We pick up evil as the human race. And so we have it in us, and it's only reason we need access to hell and heaven is the evil in us needs to be seen and rejected. Right, And that's what the hell side does for us. If we didn't already have tendencies, naturally, towards evil because of the state of the human race, we wouldn't need this same access to hell in the same way. There could be much milder choices. So I believe that if everybody was choosing heaven, first of all, God can work that equilibrium just fine with even just very few people choosing hell, but even in the end, there's everyone, Swedenborg does say, is predestined for heaven. That's the idea, is heaven from the human race. So if everybody was choosing heaven, you wouldn't need to overcome hell in the same way, because there wouldn't be this pull on the human heart for it. So in a way, it's sort of a temporary or an unideal, non-ideal condition that we have here. Does that make sense? But I see what you're saying, and I, I do think, though, that right, it's got to not be that some of us have to like take one for the team and go to hell to make this work. The equilibrium only needs to be there because things are out of whack in the first place. Or the equilibrium as it stands. There could be a different one that was between you know, really good and less good, rather than between good and really evil. You know what I'm saying? And we could still all be functioning up at this level. So great question though, that's like that's good engagement with the thought. Again, there's my answer, you go turn it over in your own mind, the, the concept itself, and, and see what, what feels real and alive to you. Alright, let's look at number two. Christoph, is there a difference between desire for miracles and desire for power? Well it depends on, you know, you could you could be wanting power through the miracles, right? I think that in in essence, when people are de- desiring something like that, is because they want something that's a form of power. Like you want you want knowledge of a future event. You want to be at the center of something. But then again, I would say like you know, if, if we're saying a a desire for a miracle is like I want to see someone I love who died. That's fine. I mean, that's that's just like the human heart wanting to you you, you want to see the people that you love. So, or you know, or if you're saying. Uh, a desire for you to be able to do miracles, then you never know because there can be, and I guess when I see you say desire for power, I'm assuming you mean it in a negative sense, like a negative desire for power. Swedenborg says there's a good desire for power as well, That that two people can both want power, but one person is wanting it for a hellish reason, one person is wanting it for a heavenly reason. The hellish desire for power is, I want power because I want to control people and I want people to serve me in some way. That's, that's what hell is. What heaven is, is I want power because the more power I have, the more good I can do. Like, you could run for a high office or try to become the very influential person because you know, as a very influential person, you can do good things for the world on a greater scale, or you can be trying to do it because you just want the adulation. So I would say there's both in there, and hopefully that is applicable to your question as well. All right, let's do uh, number three. Lee, what does Swedenborg say about the subconscious? Man, he says more about the subconscious than anybody that I have ever come across in all my, as I'm sure it's shocking, in all my vast uh, journeys through the, uh, intellectual history of the human race. Swedenborg is, in a way, heaven and hell are the subconscious. Swedenborg talks in depth about the nature of why we have the urges we have, why we have what the the genesis of the thoughts we have, which I think the subconscious in general is sort of the, the bed out of which things in us arise, right? The archetypes and that sort of thing. So Swedenborg's, the subconscious is the spiritual world, that heaven and hell are the thing behind the curtain of our thoughts and feelings. Check out our episode, Where Thoughts Come From. That's maybe a good place. It's a weird place to start, but it's maybe a good place to start there. So uh, he doesn't use that. That term hadn't been invented, but filling the same role that, that you know Jung and those guys came up with for the subconscious would be the societies in heaven, the societies in hell, both pulling at your mind and, and you being part of this long chain of consciousness. So that makes sense? Number four. Let's look at this. Drive-by poet, if miracles don't normally help much, then why do people still have them sometimes? And why do people have NDEs that might compel them in a similar way? It's a great question. I was hoping someone would ask it. Um, it, it That's why we want to highlight... You remember when I was reading that word about miracles don't reform? Um, that's why I want to highlight it. They, they can still be helpful, um, but I think they're not the thing... That everything depends on. They're, they're not the reforming agent. It's really what you do after you have the experience. You have people who have some kind of near-death experience, and it doesn't change at all how they live. Other people have it, and it drastically changes how they live because it's really about the decisions they make afterwards to embrace it, you know, and to, and to change the way that they're living. And it. I also think that there's a more complex. Subconscious, from our last question, level that we don't quite understand. You never know. The human mind is so complicated. Each person is so complex that you don't know exactly what factors are lined up in what way. Because you do get near death experiences where it seems like someone is saying, I was going this way and I had this experience and now I'm going this way. But you don't know what the what the underlying structure of that person's morality was, they may not even fully know. Because why does one person react that way to an NDE? Why wouldn't everyone just get those? I think it's because, you know, at the at the in the level of the inner thinking and 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 the sort of the more hidden stuff, divine providence is seeing when is a person primed, like they already have the will built up so that this this NDE will be, sort of um a revealer of their confirmation. It's not going to be able to flip someone, or else God would just flip everyone. But this is a this is like a step, you know. So the reason why people have them is the same reason everything happens. Like, you know, why do some people have NDEs? Why do some people have horrible experiences that happen to them? Why do people have money come into their life and other people don't? It's all divine providence, you know. The, the, and NDE is like a form of. It's just like a different. It's just like any other experience, but it's just. It's got a particularly potent effect, but my sense is it's deployed only in areas in which it can be uh, some kind of helpful addendum to what's already going on at different levels. So those are my thoughts on it, but it's a great question, and and I hope that uh, that, that just added a few thoughts into your, your sphere as you think it over. Let's do one more question before we go here. Goldie, how is it that there are people that feel God inside them personally, but others struggle to find that that even if we are studying and thinking about God, right, why does it? Why is it tangible? Why is it so real and immediate for people? And I think about that, and sometimes I even, like I'll hear stories, and I think I've mentioned this before, about people that say like, okay, I wasn't, you know, at the end of my rope and I was praying, God, if you're there, and then they get some kind of o- overwhelming thing, and I'm a little bit like, hey man, <laughs> like I, I could have used that <laughs> sometimes. Um, and it's got to be related to the answer I was given to the previous question, that life is complicated, the state of each of our individual minds is complicated, and we don't know what's best for each of us. It helps to know, so it's about changing the will and freedom. So it's not even really about making us feel good in the short term. I mean, that it's about long-term happiness, but it may be that for me, I need to be in this place where I am right now. Like, I'm trying to get out and I get some relief, but I don't get this feeling of, oh, God is right here with me, because this is part of how Curtis's mind is going to get formed. This is part of how we're going to make him change his will so that he can come into heaven. And again, it's part of the same question as, you know, this is sort of a, a form of spiritual wealth. Some people get this great feeling of God in them, whereas other people don't get that, even if they're longing for it. It's the same kind of question as why are some people born into stable, loving homes, whereas other people have really tumultuous relationships with the, the adults in their lives and, and don't have a stable foundation. And the, the answer has got to be that in the end it's working towards something, and we, we don't understand it now, but it's not out of neglect or malice on the part of the divine. I'm sure that God is, you know, aching to get everybody feeling The presence so that they feel comforted and good, but but sometimes it's like, not yet, because there's very careful, complex things we're doing here. In the end, it's all going to make sense. If we're talking about near-death experiences, one thing that unifies them is when people see the plan, and often people are let in to see the plan, when they see it from that vantage point, they think even if they had had a really rough time, they realize, okay, it's all right, everything is as it should be, there are greater forces at work here, it's going to be okay. So those are my thoughts on that. Thank you, everybody, for doing that. I love questions. And speaking of questions, if you liked that, well, we got more of it coming next week. And if you didn't like that, we're going to do it better next week. We're going to do our 10 questions show where we spend the whole time breaking down 10 of your wonderful questions and really digging into ones that we hadn't gotten into. More prepared answers than those ones I just gave to you. So it's going to be way... It's going to be whole another league next week on that. So tune in, watch your questions answered, and it's a big thank you to all of you for caring enough to ask questions so that we can think about these things, turn them over into our minds, and just learn amazing things about the spiritual succulent pots of life. See you next week, everyone.
1: Swedenborg and Life is a production of the Swedenborg Foundation. Curtis Childs is our host and producer. Art direction by Matthew Childs. Technical direction by Stuart Farmer. Ben Keys, visual effects technician. The content writing team is Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, and Chelsea Odner. Regular research and content support from Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition of the works of Emanuel Swedenborg, and Cara Dom, Latin consultant for the New Century Edition. Shada Sullivan contributes her heavenly voice to most of our readings. Amy Aquarola is our marketing communications coordinator. Alexa Cole is our online media coordinator. Our editor is John Connolly. The moderators for our thriving online community are Curtis Childs, Karin Childs, Alexa Cole, Chris Dunn, and Chelsea Odner. And the executive director of the Swedenborg Foundation is Morgan Beard. Special thanks this week and every week to the generous donors that make our work possible.